Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood, and this is the fifth and final episode of Vampire Month. And so I'd like to welcome to the show, Brett Emini. Hi, Brett. Hi, hi Dave. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us on the show. Oh, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, um, of course, the, the main reason we want to talk to you for this Vampire Month is because you own and fly a vampire, uh, the Haviland Vampire. Um, but I'd like to sort of start a little bit before then and um, just get a little bit of your background because I seem to recall reading that you come from a quite an aviation family and you um, you have a number of aviators in your in your family. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where where your aviation comes from. Um, yeah, no, it really stems right back to my dad who was a mosquito fighter bomber pilot in World War Two, yep. and um, yeah, he actually has the three wings of the RAF initially. He started off as an air gunner in the Battle of Britain and a bolt and pull defiant. Uh, he was wanting to join as a pilot, but they were short of uh, air gunners, so he just joined up as initially as an air gunner. Yep. And they trained him on, they actually trained him to fly, towed him off on the squadron anyway, um, because they knew he really wanted to fly. And then he went from there to uh, the first radar night fighting operations because they actually put the defiance on, on as night fighters because they were losing so many. Yeah. Um, so he got to do that very early uh, radar night fighter interceptor work with radar. So they gave him the navigator wings, right. and then he um, and then uh, he was after that he actually went on to flying um, and went up to Canada and did a, did a course in, in Canada to fly up there on Stearmans. <clears throat> Came back and uh, and worked his way right up to uh, training up on mosquitoes, which of course was the latest greatest thing. Yep. And he trained, trained for night intruder work over Germany. Um, but they actually wanted him as a, they, they needed somebody to take some mosquitoes out of Burma, try them out in the tropical conditions against the Japanese. And um, he got volunteered to do that pretty much. So he took a, a flight of mosquitoes to Burma. Right. Uh, so he had, um, so he got to be, he had the three wings of the RF. He was an air gunner, navigator, and pilot, which is pretty rare to do, I think, by sound. So yeah, so all our all our toys, of course, had wings when we were young. Uh, we'll wind up model airplanes, you know, they just got bigger. Yeah. Uh, control line models, and then until we could sit in them finally. So we always had fantastic support from our father, who was just really you know, keen to see us involved in aviation. So the whole family flies. My um, older brother Craig has the Chathams. Um, my oldest brother John had a Cessna two hundred six um, and an engineering business, and he still yep. continues to fly and. Uh, Younger brother Derek, uh, he worked for me. He flies everything we flew um, from gliders right through to helicopters and jets. Um, but he's a, he's an aircraft engineer, and he's uh, currently uh, working as a as he's got his own business as an aviation insurance assessor. Um, All right, at a Cromwell. So you know, between between us, the four brothers, we we do cover just about every aspect of aviation, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, so did your father carry on flying after the war as well? Did he? Um, oh, we got him back into it, actually. He was, um, I sent him solo on a glider on his 64th birthday, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> but, uh, and, and all his hours still counted from the war. Uh, yeah. with, uh, flying mosquitoes, etc. So all I had to do was to get him current, uh, get him back flying again and current for a flight test. So we, we actually did that little two-seater total, total home-built aeroplane. And um, got him flying that, and then um, sent him down to Wanganui, and he went to this flight test with the, with, uh, the instructor down there uh, 
Ivan Wilmington, who is an ex uh, uh, Air Force, he was on Mosquitoes as well, I think. So he, he was, was, yeah, yeah. He was really quite fitting. Um, Ivan said he just he wrote his, his log book, you know, welcome, welcome back to, you know, <laughs> to Avian. Excellent. Um, after all those years. So, yeah, so we have a tremendous support from our dad. You know, he was always you know, keen, keen to be involved in the aviation. And of course, when we now, we started off as glider pilots, actually. We were just sport-flying pilots. Yep. Uh, the Craig was flying gliders at Harkia. He, he was an aircraft engineer at Harkia in the Air Force. I used to go down there and fly gliders on the weekends. Yep. And we ended up back here doing the same with your pilots, so uh, quite competitive. So we got stuck into gliding. And uh, Craig made the statement. He said, well, we're spending all our money on all our money on flying and gliding, and uh, we should really do it for Korea. You know? So I was, I was a younger brother, so I thought, well, okay. Me too, you know, I must have had to go with that. Um, uh, quite a funny story, really, because Craig announced that he left the Air Force and he was going to fly helicopters for a career. Yeah. And I was going to fly um, as an airline pilot. Actually. So we debated the pros and cons of our, of our chosen career so much that Craig ended up there at Chatham since he had a whole career of airline flying. And I ended up with a helicopter business <laughs> and uh, with a whole career of, uh, helicopters, of helicopter flying. You see. So... <laughs> Um, we got our wires crossed, something terrible there. Um, <laughs> and this, and this sort of rolls on to what's really happened, um, uh, with the different types of aircraft that we, that we fly. Um, I've always, helicopters never went fast enough for me. I was always leaning forward. We ended up operating about 10 helicopters all around the country on agricultural work, oh, yeah. rescue helicopter operations and all kinds of things, training lots of pilots and, um, but I always um, like to fly fast aeroplanes in the weekend, so that's this is where all these different aircraft that I've got involved in have really come from. Okay. Yeah, essentially, yeah, essentially Catalina is. Um, when I looked at it recently, we've had the Catalina for nearly thirty years. You see, I've been doing all the, all the engineering, check and training on that aeroplane right from when we first got it. Um, right. So that's really been my airline career substitute has been the Catalina. <laughs> 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 Craig, Craig's, Craig's finally got a little Hughes 300 helicopter that we had, and he thinks he has a helicopter heaven now. He's passing around a little helicopter uh, hovering around the place and thinks it's just absolutely marvellous, you know what I mean? So it's been quite, a, quite an interesting interesting journey for, for all of us. Uh, we ended up doing a lot more in aviation than we ever dreamt we would have been flying gliders, that's for sure. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, so, what was the first warbird that you got involved with, or, or how did you get into it? Uh, uh, well, the first, yeah, the first warbird was actually the Trojan. Actually, it was because uh, you could buy shares in it, um, and well, I think it was twelve thousand dollars to buy a share in the Trojan. Yep. Uh, and that was we're going back a thirty years or so. Really, uh, yeah. I must have been really keen because I bought a share in it. Didn't even have the engine at the time. Engine <laughs> 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 was out there overhauled. I think back, I was a little bit keen. Um, I think it was twelve thousand dollars for a share, and you paid a hundred dollars an hour, um, plus I think it was sixty something, sixty five dollars a month. I think it was. Okay. Uh, and you could fly this thing, and there's about twenty two members in the Trojan. Um, so they um, <coughs> they finally finally got another engine into it, and they got checked out in it uh, back then. It was which was yeah you know, a tremendous airplane to fly. Yeah. Um, but it was always based in Ardmore, so we're we're based in, in Plymouth, so we. You'd have to actually be up there. It was always down the back of the hangar, so you had to take all the harbors out, every single thing out to get the Trojan out. So, so it was ultimately, I think I ended up doing like a few hours a year another bus lucky actually because of the drama. It's been out the shed. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 
but there's yeah, there's a lot of other things came along um, as well. Uh, the uh, we got involved with Vampire Jet early on, and that was really through Ross Ewing, who uh, and Ross's enthusiasm, of course, has inspired a huge amount of aviation, um, and and it was great aviation historian, you know, historian of field space and writing books and that sort of thing. Um, I remember I went to went up to Ardmore. I saw that they had shares available on the Vampire Jet. Well, yeah. I think it was ten thousand dollars a share. So I thought, crikey, I could do that. And met up with uh, Ross Ewing, and that was, you know, that was the end of that. Really, <laughs> he organised me to have a flight on this Vampire Jet. Uh, I remember my wife saying, are you, "Are you sure you need another aeroplane here?" And I was like, "That's because you're looking at this old jet down the back of the hangar." I thought it'd be a pretty cool thing to fly. And Ross was really keen on helicopters, and I flew up there and. Squirrel helicopter, so I ended up giving him to fly around the helicopter. And so he taught me to fly jets, so I taught him to fly helicopters. Actually. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, and we uh, ended up with a, a tremendous friend that lasted a very long time. Um, so, so Ross got me going in the vampire uh, out of Ardmore. And so I remember taking my brother Derek up for the first flight, and we shot out over Thames and, and the vampire, and I uh, thought we'd do some aerobatics. Uh, zoomed up around the first loop, and it's a huge, huge loop, and it seemed to be going on forever, you know. So we're just about pinch we're pinching each other to say, this is for real, we're actually flying this jet, this, this jet by ourselves, you know. Yeah. Um, we're looping and rolling around the sky and came back and thought, this is absolutely marvellous. So um, that was a tremendous thing. But Ross, Ross Ewing was a fantastic person for getting people involved with enthusiasm. He's like a pine pine, really. Yeah. Um, and of course, we ended up following him to when he came up with ideas like getting Catalina flying boat out here to commemorate all the people that were involved in Catalina. So that was um, another huge journey, of course, um, which you know we can talk about. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, well, we'll um, uh, we sort of you know with the vampire flying, that was great. And Ross actually trained me; he took me under his under his wing, really. As a mentor, which was fantastic, um, and he he taught me how to do uh, low level uh, display flying in the jet, you know, and yeah. all the techniques for displaying a jet and how to how to carry out a, a really good safe aerobatic routine, um, right in front of the crowd, etc. And considering all the things you need to consider for high performance low level jet aerobatics, so that was that was tremendous experience to get. Really, and then along the way, he, he came up with this idea that we should really maybe look at getting a Catalina flying boat, which, which seemed like a ridiculous uh, thing to try and do, as far as you know, to, to actually the reality of actually finding one, bring it to New Zealand. Um, yeah. We had a meeting, and we ended up with about thirty of us. Um, the, the original people that were interested in this whole Catalina project, and that same group of people stayed with it the whole time. Actually, it's been a tremendous. Organization and group of people, the Catalina Preservation Society. Uh, so we, we managed to source uh, source uh, some Catalinas and had a look at them. We went over to Florida and looked at one there, and then uh, finally decided uh, on one that was in Mena, Arkansas. We traveled all the way up to Arkansas to have a look at this Catalina. Um, and that was the first cat that we looked at bringing out, and unfortunately, we ran into some engine problems with it about halfway from. Um, Hawaii to Tahiti, and um, and they ended up uh, landing landing in the sea in the middle of the night, in the dark, um, and managed to get away with that. Which, I, which, which now with the experience I got with Catalina, we're extremely lucky to get away with that. Really, 
Right. And everybody everybody managed to get out of the plane okay and got picked up by, by a passing uh, container ship on the same day. So right. we ended up heading to San Francisco. So unfortunately, the cat ended up sinking because it sprung quite a few rivets on the hull when it landed because it was crabbing sideways of the one engine out. Yeah. Um, but um, it sunk, I think, in the deepest part of the ocean. It's only about 14,000 feet deep or something. Oh. It's ridiculous. So, um, so be, it'll be down there somewhere with fish with lights on their heads, I suppose, looking at it now. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, um, so we lost that first one, which was a real shame. And then we, we sort of regrouped. Um, and then quite a few people wanted to bail out at that stage, and we just paid them all out. And then didn't really have enough money to buy the next one. But we, we actually ended up with the airplane we've got now. We looked at earlier, but it's more expensive and in Africa. Um, but the way the dollar changed and the exchange rate changed and the, uh, the owner, Pierre Jeannet, was who'd been operating it on African safari tours, uh, came down the price of it. He was pretty keen to get rid of it at that stage. So we only really worked that out later. We were enthusiastic, of course. So we went over to uh, Zimbabwe, in Africa, to have a look at this Catalina, and took it for a, took it for a fly over there. Chris Nelson and I went over and evaluated, um, and uh, managed to do a deal uh, with them to buy it. And it was, and we ended up with a motto, you know, uh, with the Catalina badge was head on it against all odds, which it, which it really, really was. You know, we didn't really have all the money to buy it. I and Chris put off building a house for a couple of years. We threw all the money. We could find myself and my father into it um, <clears throat> to just make it happen, and um, you know, so there's a, there was a lot of things happening behind the scenes that people would never really know about um, of how we got that Catalina to New Zealand. But but we did, and uh, the it turned up at my it flew into New Plymouth actually to my my base there, helicopter base in yeah. the airport, and we spent the first six months getting it through New Zealand certification. So it was a huge exercise and uh, a great, a huge voluntary effort. And that's the only reason the cats survived over the time is that I've never charged ever working on Catalina and I've done all the maintenance of 30 years. Yeah. Um, and a whole bunch of volunteers working on the airplane. Uh, and it's, and then the organisation, of course, has been tremendous. Like guys like Chris Nelson and Lawrence Hackett, the whole team that run all the meetings, organise all the trips and that sort of thing. So it's really been a teamwork exercise by a group of people with different ex experience and, and talents in different areas and uh, brought it all together. And that's that's how we've been operating the airplane for nearly 30 years now. It's become a bit of an icon too, hasn't it, in New Zealand? Like people, just the general public, they'll recognise it uh, and they know it's the one that lands on the water and all that kind of thing. It's, it's quite a neat thing. Yeah, it's a, well, it's really special. It's because becoming quite rare. This this particular Catalina, of course, it, it went from, um, you know, from being operational in the, as in the Canadian Air Force in yeah. Canada to Australia and after the war went into servicing fishing villages right up through the lakes in Canada. Right. So it's just it's just carried on working all the time. Most of the other Catalinas that you see of ex you know water bombers. Yes. Um, Operate on really restricted category surveys because they're they're you know heavily loaded and um, overload, they operate on pretty much overloads, and they don't have the passenger seats on them. They have big water tanks built in inside them. Right. So this is one of the very rare Catalinas that's been set up with sixteen passenger seats and all nicely lined out inside, 
as as the alliance that might be securing. Um, and has and has really worked this way. It worked this whole life. It's ticked over just around thirteen thousand hours now. And of course, um, it's gone all around the world. You know, Peter Stuyvesant and travel um, used it as a promotion to tour right around the Atlantic, landing on icebergs, and doing all kinds of amazing things. So it's, it's got a lot of history. Uh, met a lot of people who flew it, you know, in the early days and went on to airline flying careers and things. So it's been a, it's been a very um, interesting met people that got married on the Catalina. You know, wow. All, all kinds of things have happened. Um, and joined up again. So uh, it, it's been a pretty, it's a very special aircraft. And but I say that the key really has, has been the Preservation Society and a bunch of people involved and um, just a big Catalina family, really. Uh, yeah. yeah, everybody has got on so well and worked together so well. So it's quite quite unique, actually, for an organisation like that to operate together so harmoniously for so long, you know? um, which is um, which sort of brings us to where we are now with the Catholic. Really. We, we always knew that it would outlast us, uh, and I was one of the younger members of the group. So, um, yeah, everybody else is 10, 20 years older than me, so we're sort of having to face the reality, especially with all the Air shows that have been cancelled, and um, the sort of funding that we that we did have has sort of been drying up. So it's, it's coming back now to you know group funding it ourselves like a syndicate, and, and it's not really practical to do that. So that's where we're looking at offering the airplane up for sale to the next generation of operators who want to operate Cadillac. Really. Right. Um, you know, we've continued to improve the airplane the whole time we've had it. It's got no time engines, a major. major Refurbished the whole aircraft and it's worked in my hangar for five years. We stripped it right, stripped it right down and uh, repainted everything. We did all the fabric work on the whole plane and um, a lot of mechanical work. So it's had a really big tidy up. Yeah, we've operated it for another six years since then and um, lots of air shows. And things. So it's been very, very successful. So we were handing it, we're handing it on in better condition than it was when we got it. I think actually, all that time ago. Okay. Wow. Uh, have you had much uh, interest in? Um, um, oh yeah, no, we have. We've got uh, got interest from America and Australia, and uh, there's got a local uh, interest in trying to put together a syndicate group, um, which they're still sort of, you know, looking to try and do that. Of course, you have to, to operate the Catalina here in New Zealand. You have to have a really good team of people with the skills to do it, actually. Yeah, and. Um, and that's essentially what where we're at now is a lot of those people are calling time on it after 30 years to say, well, we've, we're really, you know, probably done as much as we can with Catalina and um, it's probably time time to move it on to another group. Yeah. So so that's uh, that's pretty much where we are. I think, you know, 30 years of operation has been has, has, you know, pretty uh, outstanding um, you know, period of time and we've finished it. Take it to a lot of events, and air shows, and that sort of thing everywhere. Landing um, on lakes, sort of freshwater work like uh, Taupo and, uh, and down at Wanaka. Yeah. Um, I've got, you know, I've got great memories of some tremendous, you know, flights and um, things we've done with that Catalina. So, and we've managed to do it all nice and safely over all those years. We've trained a lot of pilots, you know. So it's been quite a quite an interesting journey, a really fulfilling journey, I must say. I'm sure you must have met a lot of veterans who worked on them and flew them and that too over those years. Well, we did. They, they've come out of the woodwork uh, all over the place. You know, I remember um, oh, probably about four or five years ago now, there was, um, there was 
because uh, a lot of them have you know, passed away now. There's very few still you know, yeah. around, but it was a um, flight engineer who turned up with his granddaughter, brought him along for a flight, and he was like, just about 95, 95, 98, I think it was. Right. Um, and uh, he managed to get him into the Catalina, and he brought his logbook with him that they used to, they used to get the captain to sign off their logbook. Yeah. Um, he had his original logbook from World War II. Back in, I think it was, nine, it was 1945, it was the last time he was in a Catalina. Yep. And we went for this flight around Auckland and around the uh, islands, Waiheke Island, that's where we ran the Gulf and came back and landed. And he asked me if I could you know, sign his logbook for him hmm. in the way that they used to uh, with the captains. That was a real privilege to do that. You know, yeah. And, uh, just, it was so fantastic, actually, to spend some time. It was a hard case, actually. He, 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 was, sort of, he was a bit hard of hearing and he kept saying, oh, yeah, Catalina ears, Catalina ears, because he's been so much time. A noisy Catalina, I didn't have any earmuffs in those days. <laughs> so, uh, he said, oh, my God, Catalina ears, I can't hear anything. The noise has gone away on 20, 25, 24 hour Catalina trips, you know. <laughs> um, but the, so, so there's a lot of things, and because we said so there were so many, over the years, we've met so many people involved, and because we had three squadrons of them up in the Pacific, you see, out of Fiji, etc. So there was, you know, air gunners, navigators, engineers, pilots, um, tremendous number. Even Sir Edmund Hillary was on Catalina. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, there's been some real good, some amazing history there. Uh, so, you know, it's been it's been great to meet those sort of people and show, and once again, show them the airplane, the well, the same plane that they were operating, uh, still flying at air shows and that sort of thing, and about people look at so that, just, that was the whole concept of getting a Catalina for Ross Ewing's um, you know vision was to have one here that we could paint up in the uh, New Zealand Air Force colours the same as they were up in the Pacific and um, and fly that around the country to commemorate all the people that were involved with, with Catalina so there were very special aircraft involved in every theatre of the war uh, yes. so it was um, and, and, it's, and yeah we managed to do that I think we, we can put a hand up and say we've, we've totally achieved what Ross's vision was, in fact. That's fantastic. Uh, are we likely to see it uh, on the airshow circuit over this coming summer? Uh, well, no, just have to wait and see what happens. It's, it's, um, we've had it just on ground risk insurance and we've been doing maintenance all over winter. Yeah. So, um, and we're still we're working on it now, actually, just getting it right up to speed to fly because we need to demonstrate it to people if they're coming out. We've got some groups coming out over the next few weeks um, okay. before Christmas to have a look at the plane. Yep. So if, if it got sold to America or Australia, well, it would disappear over there. You know? yep. um, and we probably wouldn't operate it again or in, in New Zealand. But uh, yeah, this is this Wednesday. So they, they may even be interested in keeping it here and just flying around New Zealand. We'll have to wait and see um, what actually transpires with it. That would actually make a, a a really good tourist company, wouldn't it? Like just flying tourists around places like Tiana or, I mean, all of those. Uh, well, that's a bit of a challenge. Well, it's it, whenever we go to Wanaka and those sort of reasons, we do a lot of flying. Um, but it, but the way it's operated, we've we've operated on a prior. We've got a I think a restricted airworthiness certificate airworthiness for the airplane, which means we can only operate on private operations. Uh, okay. So. The only so, so we went operating commercially, um, 
and the only way we could do that is on cost sharing flights. So right. You'll, you'll sort of pay equally for the, for the cost of the flight, including the crew. So um, the limitation there is you can't actually advertise the flights. Yeah. Yeah. So really, just you have like an open day and people come on the airplane and, and we can book groups to be all together on a basis where they're sharing the cost of the flight and they go. Uh, as long as you explain to them that's the basis that you're operating on. So yep. that, that's how we've operated here for the last yeah, nearly 30 years now. Right, right, right. So if, if you went that other way that I suggested, you'd have to go like what the DC3 is and become a proper airline, yes. big commercial. Yeah. It gets a lot more yes. expensive, doesn't it? Well, it, well, it really does. Um, and all the maintenance is part one or five maintenance, you know what I mean? So mm. we, we wouldn't be able to do the engineering work that we currently do on the plane. We would have to drop it off and major engineering companies to do it and it would just cripple it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, um, yeah, we realized that early on actually because all the organizations that try and do that, they, they would struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really outcome the cost of that compliance. But at the same token, we, we operate the Catalina in exactly the same way. We, we run all proper, proper ground course training, ground training courses for pilots and crew and cabin crew. Yeah. And do all the check and training to the same standard as, as you do for airline flight. So, um, we've been complying with all the air transport requirements, but, but operating it on, on a private basis. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Tell me about the Yak 52. How did you first become involved with the Yak 52? Well, the Yaks, uh, well, actually, it turned out there was one. There was Yak 52 was owned by uh, somebody I knew down in Harbour, and uh, and it was available for hire. So I I went down there one day and, and I'll take for a flight because I've always keen on aerobatics and had a whole lifetime of of uh, I've been really keen on flying aerobatics and different types of aeroplanes. So um, in the Yak 52, of course, is, is Really based on from the Yak 50, which is unlimited aerobatic machine, so for 360 horsepower and inverted oil and fuel systems and that sort of thing. So I um, uh, yeah, went down, took that, took it for a fly, and thought this is pretty quite a neat aeroplane. Then it came up for sale, so we ended up buying buying the aeroplane right. uh, and uh, and flying it out of New Plymouth. And then, and of course, in, in doing that, I ended up um, the other other pilots I knew and friends I had, they all Ended up coming to have a little look at this aeroplane. I, I sort of was a bit like Ross Ewing, you know, something <laughs> with all sort of enthusiasm and got them up uh, doing some aerobatics. And there's a lot of them had never flown aerobatics before yeah. or, had, or had a bad experience and didn't want to. So you go and do some really nice, smooth loops and barrel rolls, you know, and they go, oh, this is actually quite cool. So um, I managed to get all my friends to end up buying yaks, actually. Um, <laughs> right. just the one yak that we, we the first one I bought ended up being owned by everybody. <laughs> they got circled right around the whole group. Yeah. So sort of a fill in yak while they ended up looking around for one for themselves. Yep. So uh, it was Lemon, the Azulu, Liz. So Liz had taught a lot of people to fly yaks and uh, and do you know, aerobatics and then formation aerobatics. So I was, I was fortunate enough to uh, get offered, uh, had an opportunity to join. Uh, the original sort of Yak team, which was really headed up by uh, Paul Hugh and Huggy, his nickname, and then um, and Brian Coppersmith. Yep. They were doing a pairs display, and I saw them perform at Taupo Air Show, and I thought, it's, it's incredibly accurate flying. You know, they're only flying about a metre apart. 
they're performing you know, loops and barrel rolls and things of absolute precision. I thought that's really amazing stuff to go. I'd love to go do that. Yes. Um, and then there was Garth Hogan and uh, Bill Wolf and a few others, and Sir Kenneth here as well. Had between them, they you know, ended up with about five years. Yeah, so, uh, and then unfortunately, Sir Kenneth here had that mishap uh, in the show, so lost his life. So there was there was some gaps forming there. So they, they actually invited me to be involved if I was interested in, in joining the group. Okay, uh, which was a great, great opportunity. So I did some training with. Uh, Huggy and uh, BJ on how to, how to get around some loops and barrel rolls. And I was talking to Ross Ewing about techniques because he, of course, was in the Roaring Forties you know, Harvard team. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so it all went from there. You see, so I got the I got the basic training on how to how to get around formation loops and barrel rolls, and then uh, downloaded all that information, that uh, training, and told my friends that had brought yaks. Really fun. So we had you know, four or five of them down here, and then. Whole group, Paul Nui, of other keen aviators who also have never done aerobatics. Some were airline pilots and like Doug Batten and, and, and so and, and so on. And Kevin Jane, who was a, a good friend of mine here that worked with me as my motor driver on helicopters. I trained him to fly yaks and formation aerobatics. And then he went. He ended up living in Paul Nui, so he, he and trained all the guys up there. <laughs> So that's how it really happened. Also, you know, that's accumulated into, uh, you know, nine ship aerobatic teams. Um, with two, so there's two groups. There's, there's the Paunui team and then there's the New Plymouth team. And we then we just choreograph shows and put all the, the, whole, the different manoeuvres together and turn that into the YAC, you know, formation aerobatic team, which is, you know, which there's nine of us. Um, now, so there's yeah, so we've, we've managed to involve people in that who never dreamt they'd be involved in a, doing formation aerobatics. You know, there are, uh, a lot, there's quite a few private pilots in there that have never done aerobatics before, never tried formation. Wow! So that uh, there were you know, building contractors, uh, oil production managers. Peter Force was the head of oil production company. Yep. Um, John Street had a local, uh, yeah, a local. Uh, construction business. Uh, Kevin Kevin Jane was a local farmer, um, and they were all, you know, all private pilots. And I, I thought it was a good challenge to be able to demonstrate with the right training. You could train these guys to fly to the highest standard, the same same standard that you see in any formation aerobatic team that, of course, normally comes out of the air force. You see. Yeah, yeah. But what most people don't realise took about between two and three hundred hours of training. Before they can get around their first formation loop. Okay. Wow. So, so it's as much as you know, doing at least a full commercial pilot license, as far as the hours go to to first learn to fly yak, then learn to fly in formation, um, then you know, of course learn uh, aerobatics, uh, the aerobatic rate, and then quietly move them up to. Formation aerobatics. Uh, it's a uh, big journey. There's about ten years of training, yep. really, yep. to get them to the standard that they are now. Um, and we were flying over a hundred hours a year each, just on formation aerobatic training. Wow! So that's that's how you get there. <laughs> so you have to have people that are committed, um, that can afford to do it. That's why you know, people with own businesses really that buy a yak. Um, and they then have to you know, 
of course, buy into the whole discipline of the process of training um, to fly to that standard. Uh, and it's it's great. It's uh, it's hard work to train them, um, but uh, very satisfying when you get to an air show and you've got nine guys there who are all flying to a very high standard um, from all different walks of life. You know. It's uh, also like I was going to say, visually, it's it's one of the most pleasant uh, aerobatic teams to watch because there's so many different colours amongst all the aircraft, but but they're so they're so together. Like as you said, that when you first saw them, they're just a meter apart. It seems like all every display you guys do, whether it's windy or not, you're always really really tight and really good. Yeah, well, as a well, the philosophy I always had and trained them was I said, really, information I get not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not like merely information. It's um, you've got to fly the line, fly those lines uh, so that you're right in that position all the time. Yeah. And that's what so it takes a tremendous amount of practice to be able to do that. Uh, so, you know, first you need, you need the right techniques to be trained the right techniques, and then you have to practice those techniques and just continually practice a lot. Um, and critique them. We do. We use a video rep video most of the training uh, practices that we do, yep. and then sit down and go through it in a debrief afterwards. And because you, you can see immediately whether you're slightly out of position, whether you need to move, move forward a bit, if you're not quite flying the lines or something, it's pretty, it becomes very obvious. You see. Yes. Yep. So yeah. So you have to critique. You, you critique yourselves. You critique each other. Uh, it's um, it's an interesting journey when you take people who have. Run their own businesses. Who normally tell everybody what what uh, the story is uh, <laughs> to put them into an aerobatic team, whereby you have to have pretty thorough briefings and debriefs, and sometimes the debriefs can be a little bit um, critical yeah. of of somebody. And then they initially they can take that the wrong way, but they 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 reasonably quickly learn that there's nothing personal. It's um it's just a, it's just a journey that we have to go on to get. Uh, first, to keep it really safe, you know, you're starting the debrief afterwards by is there any safety issues today. Um, and then we, and if there are, we'll go over those, of course, but then look and then you look at refining the display. Right. So, yeah, it's, a, uh, it's great because you, know, you got an air show, you got, you want know, to take extra yaks, maybe about 12 yaks, you have two people on each, you know, plus all the support crew, you know, about 30 people going to a show. Yep. Uh, and it's like, um, you know, it's a bit like the Catalina, really. You know, there's 20, 20 people in the Catalina. So you've got a great bunch of people uh, the weekend to socialise with and, uh, and we'll be with them. So it's like taking the All Blacks to a test match, really. Yeah. Sort of, uh, but because of the amount of work and build-up you do to be able to go to one of those shows and, and do a good job, is there's uh, a lot more than people that, that um, you know, would recognise or understand who are just watching us do the show. Yeah, definitely. Now, I know that um, your daughter, Faye, has flown with the team, and I was wondering, are there many other younger um, generation coming through in the background who will join the team at some stage? Or uh, Well, there's, there's, there's people that came. Faye, Faye was fortunate, of course, to hang out with her dad. She had to come to the airport. <laughs> so, yeah. so, she was, I've got three girls, and she was, she was the one that always, you know, wanted to you know, drive the boat, fly the plane, you know, um, if she was a boy in there. So the and so Faye would um, she'd fly with she'd sit in the back seat often when we were out doing formation practice and training and she then she'd move from there to the front seat and, and uh, so she got very good at 
actually leading the whole team out on yep. practices because yep. you know, the radio weren't required and hand signals and that's all you required. And then I would, um, so she'd position, position the, we might have a you know, four or five ship group going out for practice and then she'd position them for maneuvers and I'd fly the, fly the loops and the barrel rolls, whatever we we're going to do, and then hand it back to her and then she'd reposition them, climbing up and reposition for the next maneuver and then I'd take over to the point where I didn't have to take over and she flew the maneuvers as well. Okay. Um, and then, of course, I could hop out and she put them very, very well in formation with everybody else. So that, but a, a, a huge amount of training to get her to that stage. And, uh, um, but she flies extremely well. It's, it's, absolutely, it's great to have, um, you know, the, the Faye as a daughter in the team. Um, and of course, all the guys that you know, she's grown up with, all these pilots, so that like a group of uncles that she, that she refers them to, <laughs> yeah, uncles, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but to be, and she's very humble to be flying in the team with that, that, that those sort of experienced people. Yeah, but, um, it's just a great job. So it's uh, it's really good. It's nice, nice for me as well. Yeah, great. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so you've recently, uh, what's the last two years or so, on the airshow circuit, you've had um, your other new team, which is the T twenty eights together, the two of them. Um, and now that's that's another really beautiful looking display. Yeah, so that all came together um, with the with the Trojan. Um, the one I've got was the was the syndicate machine that we the very first you know, world that I got involved in, and of course we just ended up in a situation where not a lot of people were flying the aeroplane, so the opportunity came came up for me to actually fly that aeroplane um, off the off the syndicate because yeah. I needed a big tidy up and refurbish side. I brought that down to New Plymouth and did it all up because Peter Bulls is. Um, I've been, he's been very involved all the way along. You know, so I took, he, I took him uh, on my wing as far as training him for the aerobatics and got him into a yak. He ended up buying Liz off as the first yak. He was, he was the first one to do that. Yeah. Um, and then from there, because he ended up with, uh, with the Dell 39 uh, jet as well, Albatross, yeah. they brought out from America. So I, was, uh, I knew he was going to need a whole lot of help with that. Um, so I ended up training him to fly that as well. So the the Trojan, when I, I got my Trojan going and got him up and flying the Trojans, but like when I took him up for his first flight in the Yak, he thought this is quite interesting. So he sort of he said to me, "So would you, you know, would be happy to share this Yak, this Trojan rather?" And I said, "Well, I'd be happy to let you fly it a bit, but I didn't, didn't really want to see it disappear over the horizon without me being in it." So he he went looking for his own and brought one from Australia, um, which just happened to come out in the same paint scheme. Yeah, um, as, yeah. Um, and they flew it out. They actually flew it out from from, from Brisbane, okay, uh, by, by North Um So and it was quite a low, quite a had low time engine and props, and it was really nice, really nice condition machine. Yeah. So I converted them onto that, and of course Pete has been flying, yeah, doing such a good job um, flying formation aerobatics and different positions over the years, and also I got him. I got him going in the jet as well, so he was flying. I even got him to the point where he led the, led the jet display at Wanaka with a lot of ex-Airports guys hanging around, you know, stacked around him, yeah. which, uh, which everybody was wondering about that initially because here's this guy with private pilot license and the flying L39 jet leading the jet display at Wanaka. Yeah. Um, but he did a very, very good job of that, and it just comes down to training, you know, lots of training. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the natural thing, of course, was just to chase each other around the sky um, and do formation aerobatics and Trojan. So we're, we're really running the same type of uh, 
display that we run with the axe, so those same type of manoeuvres, and we can run them, we can run them nice and close together because we're used to that. Uh, and Pete's doing, a, I normally lead him in the displays, and he's doing a wonderful job of, of hanging in there in formation. It's a big, it's a big aeroplane to um, handle, uh, you know, compared with the yak. So there's a lot, there's particularly a lot, hard, a lot more involved and a lot more energy going on with the type of aeroplane, a lot more um, torque changes with the power, and you're a lot more limited on, on how much power you can put on and take off without potentially damaging the engine. So, uh, oh, right. you know, we have to you know, balance that. So that, yeah, from the ground, you probably never pick up just, just what's going on up there, but I have to, um, you know, back the power off enough for him so that he doesn't have to use too much power. And some of the movers, and uh, and I have to power up as well, so he doesn't have to pull up, pull, he can't pull uh, too much power off. You see. He doesn't go closing the throttle on that big engine, which um, can cause damage to the engine. So it's it's a, a challenging aeroplane to fly standard that he's flying at in formation, I must say. And he's doing a great, he's doing a great job. We're having a lot of fun with that. It's really um, it's quite cool. That the Trojan is essentially about halfway between. Flying the yak and flying the jets, right? Yep. That's what it was designed for, wasn't it? As a lead into the jets and the in the military uh, yeah. and that. So yeah, it was really. Well, the Trojan took over from the harbour. They yeah. were still all made by North America, and they also made the Mustang. So when you hop in the Trojan, you got the same trim knobs and things. They're all the same as the Mustang. Okay. Yes, yeah, a few Mustang bits in there. I mean, I was lucky enough to get to fly the Mustang for. A few years with Crown Bethel's one, which is you know, which is great. Yep. Yep. Um, so, um, uh, and of course, you, the the power that the, has the same sort of power as Mustang actually. So the amount of torque that, uh, on takeoff, the amount of rudder you use, that sort of thing is very very similar. Yeah. And so, and speed's pretty up there. Like we were entering all those aerobatic maneuvers, about two hundred and fifty knots for loops okay. and barrel rolls. So you're, you're smoking a lot. Yeah. And um, put up a lot of sky, but we do it at very low G. Like we do a whole routine and not exceed three and a half Gs. All oh, right, okay. So we're using the inertia of the airplanes to um, to fly those maneuvers uh, without actually putting a whole lot of G. So like looking looking after them. Yep. Oh, good. And ourselves, much. But uh, but yeah, they they they've got a lot of energy and they make a lot of noise and they. Uh, We've got smoke kits in both of them now, so you can make the whole thing look, look really interesting. So we've been designing a display, which is which brings the aeroplanes down in front of the uh, the crowd um, with the uh, with a lot of energy and noise, and um, it show, shows them off at different angles. You know? Yeah, quite, quite well, I think. Yeah, that's what we love. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's all about entertaining everybody. You know? Yeah, and, uh, and making it. Yeah, you know, so it's a good safe. Safe uh, display that we can all enjoy actually doing as well, which is, which is where we where are we at with those airplanes. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, onto the vampire. Um, you were talking about how Ross Ewing taught you how to fly it for the um, air show crowds, and I was just thinking, would you have been the first civilian trained pilot to fly a military jet uh, in a display in New Zealand like that? Um, oh, uh, well, after display flight, um, yeah, well, yeah, she just thought about that. <laughs> um, quite, quite possibly, actually. Yeah, because yeah. most of them would have been ex Skywalk guys and vampire guys, I guess. Oh, they were, yeah. Like Trevor, yeah, like Trevor Lamb, Moss Yeah, 
uh, all those guys were ex Air Force. They were all ex Air Force trained this Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's just quite possible it was. I never actually thought about that. But it's quite possible. It's, so uh, that, of, oh, sorry. So, no, that's right. Uh, so the um, the vampire uh, when you first got involved, it was already a syndicate. Is that right? Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, it was about yeah. sixteen members in the syndicate. Okay, okay. So is it still a syndicate now, or, or have you bought that one outright as no. well? Um, well, they, what, what happened there was um, yeah, it's interesting with that first first vampire. I got pretty enthusiastic about flying that, that vampire, and um, and I and I wanted to get really good at flying. So I ended up doing probably oh, well over ninety percent of the flying in the in the actual syndicate vampire. I think uh, I remember I bought it down for one weekend. I think it was late weekend, long weekend, and we did uh, burnt, burnt fifteen thousand liters of fuel in the weekend. I took everybody for a fly I can think think of that I sort of knew, all my pilots and loaded drivers and everybody. Yeah, um, we're doing about ten trips a day, I think, <laughs> to do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I just wanted to get really, really current and well ahead of the aeroplane. Yeah. So, uh, and I often buy it off the syndicate, but there's there some some that we've let keen on me buying for some reason. So I ended up buying an opportunity to buy one from Switzerland. So the vampire I've got is actually an ex Swiss Air Force vampire. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and I was um, really fortunate that it was the last vampire that they completely rebuilt um, in Switzerland. For the Swiss Air Force, and it only done about ninety hours for this total able that they put you know, new wings, and new undercarriage legs, everything they could possibly unbolt. They uh, they put on this new because they had all the parts in. Oh, really? So it was probably one of the nicest ones in the world, really. Fair, um, but it just needed a really nice paint job. Because um, it was still in Swiss colours. Yeah. So I managed to buy that out of Switzerland, and we. Actually, up and sent out, and it arrived actually at the same time as the Catalina flying boat team. Oh right, okay. And the, it was interesting about the engineer that was on the Catalina, uh, this guy Harry Hawcroft. He was an uh, English old English gentleman, and he had uh, worked for the Havilland. He put about a hundred vampires together in the factory, so he knew all about assembling vampires. He didn't even have to look at the manual at all. So he stayed on for a few weeks to help him put the vampire together. Which was really great. So we, we actually put the so the Catalina turned up and we went straight on and vampire again. So the second the vamp, the syndicate vampire ended up uh, a friend of mine, John Curry, who's got Garden City helicopters in Christchurch, and he, I got him involved. It was a bit of a compulsory membership, really. I told him you should really get involved in this. Yeah. Uh, he ended up buying it off the ah, syndicate because right, okay. because after after I bought mine, it flies nothing at all. Because I was doing a client, so um, right. they they were happy. To so he's so John bought it on the basis that I'm teaching him to fly it and help maintain it for him, which I have done for thirty years now. Right. Um, and that gave us a second vampire to fly uh, at the air shows. So we've been flying the two of them, and I've got Paul Hume who you know, who, who taught us uh, formation aerobatics and the Yaks. Yep. Paul's um, uh, ex Skyhawk pilot and uh, very very good. Very good hands-on pilot and very disciplined guy, and um, what a skill, tremendous skill. So I checked him out on the vampire, and he's been basically leading me around the air shows um, for quite a long time now. Must be, must be fifteen years or so. Okay. Oh wow. So, 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 so 
again, guys up normally, um, Huggy or Paul, Paul his nickname's Huggy. Yeah. Uh, he, he, um, yeah, he leads and I follow, basically. Okay. So that um, one that Huggy flies is ex Royal Australian Air Force, isn't it? Okay. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That was uh, that was so what that was the first one. Ross that was Ross Ewing was getting of course. He, he that was his idea to get a flying band fire and put together the group. Right. Um they actually flew it out, they flew it out from Australia. They oh okay. Out, uh, in Brisbane they should buy North Carolina to New Zealand. Man, that, that that's uh, that seems like it wouldn't have enough range of vampire. They, they always talk about them, you know, not having yeah. enough range. Well, if you go high and you've got tailwind, they, they pick the conditions, um, and you've got drop tanks you put on as well. You see, so yeah. you get the extra fuel range. So, um, but yeah, they didn't, didn't manage to do it. <laughs> so yeah, they got quite a nice tailwind. I think they had a tailwind um, <laughs> at about twenty-five thousand feet. Yeah, buzzing one. Quite, quite interesting, really. Do, do you fly your one up high in the? Um, no, is, is it pressurized or? Uh, yeah, they are pressurized. They they come they're actually a wooden fuselage and pressurized. But it's only military pressurization, so it's about uh, three psi. So when you're at uh, thirty thousand feet, the cockpit's about eighteen thousand feet. Yep. Okay. So you need to have, you need to still use oxygen. Yep. But we. We worked, and with the original syndicate machine, we used to do oxygen masks and, and, and ran the oxygen, but we never used to fly it over 10,000 feet very much. So I came to the realisation that that was all a bit of waste of time. Right. <laughs> so, um, and quite claustrophobic, people would be wearing oxygen masks and things, yeah. yeah. So um, we you know, dispensed with all that, and I've, I've never really, I've never used the oxygen in my one, actually. Um, okay. we, we don't really fly them above 10,000 feet. 12,000 feet, maybe just going to an air show, but I'm thinking that we, other than that, we don't fly high. Right, right, right. Um, and of course, there's no there's no bang seats in them, is there? They, they, they're not fitted. Yeah, well, well, no, we haven't got any live ones. When, when live I was in in Switzerland, they had live ejection seats. No? Okay. And they, um, but they're actually quite, it's quite uncomfortable because of the parachutes and everything pushes your way forward on the seat, so you just about your nose on the instrument panel, and it's not very right. really comfortable. Right. So, like, so, I mean, then you can actually put some seat cushions on there and move, move back away from the instrument panel. It's much more comfortable. Right. Yeah. And the, the, the thing with the vampires is a tremendous glider. Um, you can, after takeoff, you know, you get up to a few hundred feet and you can close the throttle, turn around and go back and land again. Okay. Like, it breaks all the about turn backs. You can actually practice and train turn backs after takeoff from the vampire and then you can take So, uh, yeah, it's just a big flying wing. It's not a big Big glider, really. Right. So, it's amazing how uh, how much the speed just doesn't drop off. You know? Okay. Nice. Just so you've got to put the speed brakes out. Air brakes out to try and slow them down, downwind, because just you can fly the whole length of down the leg and hardly lose the speed. Yeah. Put it with the throttle shut. What's it like these days for uh, getting spare parts for the likes of brakes or or tires or engine parts? Uh, well, not too bad. We were a bit fortunate. We took the opportunity to get some lot of spare parts for it earlier on. We went over to the UK, and then there was a, a company that had a lot of uh, venom and vampire spares. Yep. So we pretty much bought up three of everything we could think of, everything electrical, hydraulic, or fuel systems, and things like that. You know, quite a few tires and brakes and brake pads. Um, undercarriage legs, all that sort of stuff. So we've, we've actually got a good supply of spares, actually. Okay. No, the limiting thing with the engines, really, because there's no, 
is there's not a lot of engines available now, um, and there's nobody doing them up, and the cost cost of that would be horrendous. So, so we're we're down down on, on spare engines, but um, yeah, we've still got pretty okay, good engines. In there. You know, like we don't fly it that much. When we first were flying, it was flying the Vampire. We're doing about probably about thirty hours a year in the Vampire space. Because you know it goes fast. We need plenty yeah. of trips. Um, that's you know, so you, well, you know, like sixty flights a year, it's over one a week. Yeah. Um, and these days, we really don't fly it much unless uh, someone's going for a ride for the birthday and buy some fuel for it, or we um, are flying into the air shows. You know, so you, you get down to probably around about ten hours a year. Okay. Right. So, yeah. so the actual wear and tear on it isn't too bad then. Um, no, no, it's not. No, it's, uh, tremendously, it's amazing. The engineering on it's so good. Uh, like they first flew a ninety forty three. Yeah, and the engine is super simple engine. Yeah, it's just uh, I think the the Hadwin brothers went over and had a look at uh, at Whittle's engine, and then came back and designed the Hadwin Goblin engine. Pretty much. Okay, okay, yeah. It's a super simple engine. It's like a tur- car turbocharger, really, uh, with uh, sixteen combustion cans stacked around in, uh, around it to create its own exhaust. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just a, a shaft with two bearings on it, and a centrifugal compressor at the front, one turbine wheel at the back, and, and these 16 combustion chambers. And away you go, and the, the fuel control units, which are a little square block of aluminium with, with a tapered needle valve in it, that the opens and closes to give you the amount of fuel you want. Okay, all right. It's a very simple, uh, simple systems, uh, which is good because you know, not a lot to go on. Yeah, yeah. So when you're flying it, have you got any sort of self-imposed restrictions like a maximum speed or maximum G that you're pulling it? Or? Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't fly, we don't fly like to maximum speed. We, we take it up to we can like the the Viennese, uh, well, mine's been Swiss, of course, it's in kilometres actually. It's, oh, yeah. uh, it's eight hundred and thirty kilometres an hour or four hundred and fifty knots. I think it's lean yeah. um, and. Um, and we don't take it up there. We, we take it up to around about 700 kilometers an hour, for the works Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, and we keep the G loading down to, uh, you know, about four Gs, really. Yeah. So sort of exceed about four Gs. I think the highest we've ever headed up to is about five and a half Gs. The G meter's got a bit of a, it's got a needle that stops that you can't reset it. So it's <laughs> five and a half Gs. Uh, they're, they're stressed of uh, six and a half Gs positive and, that's about three and a half negative on four negative. Okay. Cool. Uh, but you've got a wooden fuse large still. Yes. Yeah. So um, we, we look after it, you know. So. But have you had to do any refabricating on it since you've owned it, or is the fabric um, still good? Or? No, the fabric's really still good. Like, we, when we got this one, it's been totally recovered. Everything yep. stripped off and recovered. The, um, the ex Australian one, we've like, rather ended up. Uh, repairing and recovering that half with fuselage on that. Oh yes, yeah. Um, many years ago, but it's it's stayed it's stayed in really really good condition because it's keeping them inside is the key. Like a nice nice hanger. Yeah. Um, well sealed up. So the limitation was really on the on the woodwork and wooden glue and that sort of thing. But these, these both these vampires are in very very good condition. No no issues there at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, a couple of the the memorable uh, events that I've been to that with with you flying the vampire and Huggy and the other one, um, wh- one that sticks in my mind is uh, Wings Over Wire Rapper. A few years back, you guys put together the six ship jet team 
which mm-hmm. she named Jedabatics. Uh, with the two vampires, the L39s, and was it two Strike Masters, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That must have been an interesting one with the three different jet types, mm-hmm. uh, all, at, all at different power ratings and everything, and you're doing loops together, which was, and it looked just absolutely amazing. Yeah, that was really cool to do that. Um, just just get that bigger formation of jets up together was great. Yeah. The uh, the vampires fly really well with the strike masters and the um, and the L thirty nine. So I've chased Peter Vores around a lot in his L thirty nine. Yeah. The, the the interesting thing about the vampires though is we if they're, they're so much cleaner um, when you're entering entering a loop. If we're chasing the L39s, they have set power. They'll be running like 100% RPM. They go up to about 106% for their maximum power, but they run about 100% on the entry. Right. And we'll be we'll be chasing them downhill with the vampires. We just have to that. Once you go past about over 300 knots, up around 350 knots, we just keep throttling back in the vampires because we just overtake. Wow. So um, they're so much cleaner than the modern jets. Oh wow! But it's not it's not unusual, especially with chasing the clumsy bikes, the the, um, the strike masters. We're um, you know both Huggy and I have ended up you know entering entering loops and formation aerobatics for some of these jets with throttle shaft just the power of the vampire <laughs> gliding. I wasn't nervous. You're five hundred feet entering a formation loop just about with the throttle shaft. You know, then you've got to just ease that power on um, as you're going up to to stay with them, but it's it's, there's definitely, it's definitely quite a difference in the performance of the airframes um, at that yeah. high speed. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious why. It's the, the vampire's got a really nice laminar flow of weight. Mm. Big weight. Um, but it doesn't have tip tanks on it. It doesn't have big air, big intakes on the fuselage. It doesn't have a high tail. It's got two booms with small rudders on it. Yes. Yeah. So you just you don't have all that uh, extra sort of parasite drag that you have on some of the more modern aircraft. So it's uh, it's really interesting to hear the comparisons. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. another another one of those events that you uh, you flew in. I'm pretty sure it was you that was flying alongside the mosquito. Uh, at the yeah. Astros. Now that must have been pretty special, knowing that your dad was a mosquito pilot during the war. Oh yeah, that was that was really special. We got some great video of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really really enjoyed that. And the test flying the first mosquito, we were chasing around the vampire, getting some really good shots of it, um, yeah. and. Uh, you can actually feel the you can actually feel the resonation resonating exhaust coming through from the from the mosquito we're in that closer formation. You know, it's, wow. It's coming right through the side of the of the, of the vampire. And we were throttled way back, you know, we were just cruising <laughs> about oh, about seven or eight thousand revs, you know, normally cruising about nine and a half thousand revs. So wow. uh, uh, but um yeah, really cool to fly those together in formation. And it's, it's a shame, a shame my dad didn't get to see that mosquito fly. You know, yeah. Before that, but it was uh, uh, so, such a cool thing to be involved in. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, that'd be something that you'd love to fly would be the mosquito one day. Oh, yes, 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 they would. Somehow <laughs> 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 well, I missed out on flying that I'm not sure. But uh, I'll just have to live and hope, you know, wait. <laughs> you're going to be if they invited, just yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> definitely available. <laughs> so, what what are the um, interesting jet types have you flown? I think did, did you fly the Hunter? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate to get to fly the Hunter, Dave Phillips, um, the person flying the Hunter, uh, yep. which was um, which was very, very cool to do that. You know, you fly an aeroplane doesn't even have a V and E, you can dive it around as fast as you like. Okay. You break the center barrier and dive. Um, uh, 10,300 pounds of thrust, you know, um, quite a tight sort of cockpit and the single seater. So, you know, they basically read the manual and, and, and they gave me a few tips on, on different aspects of flying it. And, um, you feel a bit like the proverbial test pilot when you taxi up for the first time. Yeah. But there's no dual controls, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you, you open the throttle and pushes you back in the seat and it rocks off down the runway. Yeah, home, home alone and hunter is what I called it. <laughs> <laughs> Feel a bit like a piece of mouse being stuck on the road initially, but you catch up with it after a while. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was really really cool to fly. Hydraulic controls, you know, really nice to fly, um, and uh, and the fastest I've ever been. That's for sure. Wow, it's uh, it's fabulous. You get, you get a block clearance uh, up to twenty thousand feet for aerobatics and things like that, which is yeah. pretty, pretty amazing. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I really enjoyed flying the hunt. I'd love, love to have done more on that. Yeah, brilliant. And I'm sure. Sorry. Sorry. I, uh, I was lucky enough to get to fly the Venom as well. The Venom oh, is yep. a step up from the Vampire. It's, it's got, um, the Vampire's got 3,500 pounds of thrust, and the Venom's uh, got uh, 4,000. Uh, 4,500? It's, it's got it's that extra 1,000 pounds of thrust. Makes a huge difference. Yes, yes. Uh, plus, there's a, yeah, it's quite a slim wing on it as well, so you, you can accelerate to 350 knots and climb at 10,000 feet a minute in the in the uh, Venom, wow. which is pretty amazing. So, the, and straight level, you know, you can, you can push it up over 400 knots uh, straight level. So, very much like Skywalk actually. Yeah, the performance. Um, I, was, you know, I did I did a practice at a hockey with, with um, as a air show practice, and it was just Fabulous how you can just enter any maneuver from straight level. Okay. It's really, really, uh, really cool to do that. So, um, yeah, I've you know, been fortunate to have a, have a flight on a few different jets, which I've been, which has been great, great experience, I must say. Uh, uh, you must have flown the L39, I guess, Peter's one. Uh, yep, yeah, I've done a lot of flying that. Yep. Um, very nice airplane to fly. They're, they're Beautifully designed because you know we're all brought up to think that the Russian aircraft were inferior to the you know to all the American aircraft. The natural fact, it's probably the other way around. <laughs> yeah. But um, from what I can see, the engineering is tremendous on the, on the Russian aircraft. Like the L thirty nine, I'm sure must have been designed by by engineers and flight instructors because you can't you're not allowed to hurt the airplanes. So if you if you take off and you don't put the flaps up, they go up automatically. On uh, near switches, and if you try and put the flaps down and you're above the maximum flap speed, they won't go down. Oh wow! And if you if you got them down and you um, on approach and you, if you go above the maximum speed, they should go up. <laughs> uh, if you're if you're up doing uh, up at altitude doing some aerobatics and diving at the ground, if you if you get close to the V and E, the speed brakes come out by themselves. Okay. Stop you going over the V and E. So. There's a whole lot of features like that, uh, and if you don't put the undercarriage down, if you've if you got the flaps down and you haven't got the undercarriage down, there's a horn that just about drives you out of the cockpit. You know? <laughs> so it's 
very, very well engineered um, and, of course, designed to operate off um, you know, sort of un, uh, unprepared fields and has its own, own little um, jet power starting unit in it. So right. they didn't have to have any ground support at all. Correct. Just a little turbine engine that then air starts the main engine. Yep. So, you know, you literally just climb in it, close the canopy and push start button and there you go. You don't need any ground support, ground support for it at all. Wow, that's pretty smart. And uh, the other thing about all the Russian aircraft, including the Yaks, is they they have self-locking undercarriage. Yep. So when the undercarriage goes down, it's actually lock. It's got a lock a system of four bearings that actually locks it down. Um, so that you never have to put you don't have to put undercarriage locks in any of the Russian aircraft. Okay. So they come with their own automatic locking system. Wow. So yeah, some really really advanced um, practical. Things that they don't have super strong aeroplanes, they're all made super strong, you know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I think it's interesting is they they never they weren't building aeroplanes to sell to somebody else, just they were building aeroplanes and helicopters and things to use themselves, right? You know, they just built it as they felt it needed to be to be really serviceable and useful. Whereas in the Western world, we were always building aircraft and helicopters to try and sell to somebody and make a margin and profit out of it. Yes. So they, so they end up being, you know, lighter wage, that sort of thing, to you know, sort of skimping on stuff to try and make some money. Well, the Russians never did that. And now I think, and that's the difference between the Russian aircraft and the Western aircraft. Yeah, that's just from what I can see. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I've heard yeah. the same thing uh, from other people who've flown Russian aircraft, and even the likes of uh, uh, the LA 9, the guys who flew the LA 9 that was flying here for a while. You know, they, yeah. they reckon that was as tough as anything. And, you know, it, it ground looped several times and never did any damage and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. Oh, they're really they're super strong. Yeah. Um, so what they end up doing really, like especially with the helicopter side, they end up with a bit heavier helicopter and they put bigger engines on them. They didn't worry about how much fuel they're going to do. Yeah. They just, they just put high-powered engines in there and derated things uh, so that they just go and do the job. Yeah. Um, they've proven to do that with logging and the aircraft that come out here and, and been working commercially. They they tremendous run out of them. Yeah, yeah. So now it's interesting. Really, it's, it's good to have a bit of a play with all that different stuff. So, what are the helicopters that you fly for work these days? Um, well, we had we've had quite a quite a range of helicopters. We started with Q's three hundreds and L forty sevens, L jet rangers, squirrels. Um, uh, we, we bought these Sikorsky S55s in for overseas, a big radial power ones. Right. Um, uh, they were still being, being used on forestry spraying. Yep. Now, the first trip carrying helicopter, actually, they built back in the early 50s. Yep. Um, and then we went on to operating Iroquois as well. Okay. So, um, so we had pretty much across it, really about 10 helicopters uh, through the season. These, these days, we, we don't. Now, with a lot of the guys, we most of the people we trained became the next generation of helicopter operators. So we, they progressively bought machines off us, and then they we sub subcontracting to go and do the work for us. Right. Um, which is, um, yeah, which was really the natural progression for them, and, and a whole lot less work for me. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you don't get a day off if you've got ten helicopters operating. I can show you that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it was, it was an interesting, exciting time. I must say, <laughs> so we got to buy some interesting helicopters. There's a lot of interesting things with them, yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
So is there anything that you would uh, really like to fly? Is there something that would be your dream aircraft to fly? Oh, well, um, uh, well, I really like going fast and flying jets. I'd love, love to have a go in like a F-16 or F-18 or something like that. The, um, I'd like to experience that. You know, yeah. Just go supersonic. Uh, Australian level would be quite cool. Yeah. It's, um, that, that would be cool. I sat, sat in the F-18. Australian ones always came out. Yeah. Kind of good cop tour of, of those, but yeah, I would like to light it up and fly. So that's that would, that's the sort of thing that we can do. Uh, but really, been very fortunate uh, to get to fly some really quite cool airplanes. Anyway, um, and uh, just to continue to do more of that, really, uh, would be fine. With the, with the airplanes, aircraft we've got, we're pretty much covering the range from you know from. Motor gliders through the jets, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, just continuing to be able to actually continue and do that um, is, is great. And I've been, we've been fortunate that, you know, people have allowed me to fly some great things like Brown Bethel, when he flies Mustang, and then they had, they had gone in the uh, P40 yep. as well. When Garth Hogan had that, it was, it was been someone else fly that, which was, which was a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, but the, the range of airplanes that we fly with, if you look at the you know the Yaks, uh, Trojans, and then through to the Jets, um, and then you have you know, the Catalina on the side, you know, um, they pretty much cover so that's, that's that's great range just just right there. Definitely, definitely. Uh, what, what was the aircraft that you flew into Tamanui um, last month with uh, the the twin Cessna? Was it? Oh, that oh, that's a Cessna three twenty. Three twenty. It was a, it's a Mac. Yeah. It looks like it's straight off the factory floor. No, uh, it was, it's been my, we've tied it all up nicely. Yeah. <laughs> I've had, had that for over 30 years. Um, okay. We, um, it's a, it's the only one in New Zealand. So it's like a Cessna 310, but it has Cessna 402 engines and wings. So it's got the 300 horsepower turbocharged engines. In it. All right. Um, and it really performs. So they call it an executive Sky Knight. It was designed to, you know, fly fly executives around uh, at about up to about twenty five thousand feet. You, you have to be sipping oxygen because it wasn't it wasn't pressurized. Right, but uh, gets along really well. Like it, it cruises about one hundred ninety knots at ten thousand feet. You know, it's um, wow. it's great. And then you can zoom in and land in a short airfield. You know, you can, you can land in you know, easily in about sort of three to four hundred meters. Oh wow! Okay, so. so yeah, so I've, I used it uh, to fly around the country, you know, maintaining helicopters, organising things from one end of the country to the other for, for the last 30 years, right? Okay. Oh, cool. More than 30, more than 30 years now. So, um, and yeah, so it just becomes a part of the collection, but it's not an economic aeroplane to operate commercially because there's not big engines but not enough seats. I think it's six seats. So, yeah. you know, I first saw it, Dennis Thompson had it for sale. Um, I got within about 100 yards of it and said so. so. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I had, how it looked, and I thought, well, that's, that's me. That would be great. <laughs> Nobody was really that interested in buying it because it didn't, didn't really fit a commercial. Uh, I think it was about $60,000 way back then. But right. um, we, we've had a, a great run on that aeroplane. Um, so it's, it's turned into a real classic aeroplane. So we've had a big refurbish on it recently and they're all, all new interior and uh, repainted the whole thing right back to original. So um, 
So we've ended up uh, pretty much most aeroplanes that we've, we've um, most of them have done up over the years. So we're not, not really good at selling any. I've still got the uh, Austin. I did my first solar and she was Look at that in back then. We got it flying again after 20 years. So that was a bit of a trip down memory lane, taking that for a flight. Great. Yeah, it was never even had a radio in it or anything. So, like, yes. hand started, off you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's um, it's quite, a, quite a reasonable collection of aeroplanes. We use, we use in our business for, tra- for traveling around the country because we work, we work from the top of New Zealand to the bottom. Uh, but, yeah, and often at the same time. So, we needed to be able to get there to fix things normal. Yeah, yeah. The like, crews around that sort of thing. So, yeah, we, we toured the country a lot with those, with those classic aeroplanes. Yeah. H- have you ever thought about uh, opening your hangar as a museum to the public sort of thing? Or uh, well, it was pretty much just all the time anyway. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> we get so many people come and come through. If anybody wants to come, they're very welcome to come and look through our hangar anyway. Oh, great. Um, we have... Um, and a Peter Ball's hangar is a bit like looks like a museum anyway because you know, it's got nice painted floor and nicely lined uh, ceiling, and we've got all the jets, and jets and yaks and um, trojans and everything parked in there. Yep. And we actually get yeah, we do actually get groups, you know, school school group parties coming out. They bring busloads of kids out. All right. And, so, and a lot of other you know a lot of other groups. You know, you get, um, well, there's all different, all different groups you can imagine actually uh, can come out rock. So we normally, we normally open, open up and show them all around. Yes, that, that happens quite a lot. Okay. Oh, brilliant. And we haven't got around and charge anybody to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it creates a lot of interest, you know. It's, uh, we're all very, very happy to share, share that. Uh, let people get up close to the aeroplanes and fly around on them and stuff like that. But we're not too precious about that. Yeah. And they... They can sit on them and see what it looks like on the inside, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would have loved that when I was a younger, guy, younger person. <laughs> Someone had to do that. So yeah. we probably uh, recognize that as a quite special thing to do for people. You know? Yeah, definitely. It inspires a lot of new, it inspires a lot of new aviators as well, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we should probably just uh, finish off, um, come back to the vampire and. Uh, you know, the the vampire now, it's um, 50 years since it left the RNZF service, and uh, the one that you have and the one that uh, Huggy flies, the Curry family's one, uh, really the only um, two flyable ones in New Zealand, and I can't see too many coming onto the scene for a long time. So you guys are sort mm-hmm. of keeping the um, uh, keeping the dream alive of, uh, of, of, you know, active vampires, and there's probably still a lot of guys out there who flew them or maintained them and you know you must meet a lot of veterans and that sort of thing uh from from the 21 years i think it was that they they operated in new zealand and uh you know it's it's important to i mean it was a really important aircraft for new zealand and and i think it's what you're doing is great yeah as well as it's exactly right we do we do meet a lot of people who work on either engineers pilots etc on them and um the cool thing about having is a two-seater is you can get people up for a ride and you know, we don't do the commercial or anything, but we just cost sharing basis for them by the fuel, etc. Yeah. So um, we've been able to get a lot of people up to sort of fly and that type of aircraft that not normally ever do that. Right. And it's dual controls, so they can have a bit of a, a hold around and fly in a jet 
uh, themselves. So it's a really you know, life experience for them. Yep. Um, I, I love flying that airplane. It's just uh, if you haven't flown the Vampire for a while, it's uh, it's an absolute beautiful airplane to fly. Okay. You know, all the Havilland airplanes are nice to fly. But I've found more than everything I've flown has got the Havilland name on it. Um, always beautifully harmonized on the controls and lovely and smooth. Like the vampire is like a sewing machine, it just leaves the noise behind and it's lovely and smooth. Yeah. Um, yeah, you wouldn't know you're going fast unless you come down near the ground, really. It's just, uh, it's, it's really, really quite cool. So, yeah, to, to get to fly, to fly that airplane, uh, it just takes me back. My dad, of course, he loved flying it. He thought it was, it was like being back in a mosquito because it wasn't yeah. that long after the mosquito they actually built the vampire anyway. It still made it work. Right, right. So, yeah, it's been a, it's a very special airplane. They're, they're very rare now. They're much more rare than any Spitfires or Mustangs or anything like that. There's only there's very few of them flying in the world planes, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, and the, the airplanes that we've got uh, have got plenty of life left in them, that's for sure. So we'll, we'll just continue to uh, look after them, maintain them, and, um, and try and get them along to uh, some of the air shows. It's um, that's yeah, but a very very it's becoming more special all the time. Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, well, thank you very much, Brett. It's been fascinating, and it's been a pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. Yeah, no, it's good. That's always good to share share the experience, and uh, so uh, and all the work that you guys do is, is really great too. Thanks, thanks, thanks for doing that. Oh, no worries. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks a lot. Okay, cheers. All the best. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. 